We have a favor to ask. Our partner is conducting a survey and would be grateful for your help in answering a few questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps support our advertisers. Please go to slatestudy.com to complete the short survey now. This podcast may contain explicit language, and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It's Friday, October 4th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Senator Marco Rubio, when asked about Donald Trump's request that China investigate Joe Biden, had some comments. Now, what I saw in that Trump statement was uh, an impeachable act. Senator Rubio, he saw the comic stylings of Donald. Can I get a what what Trump? I don't know if that's a real request or him just uh, needling the press, knowing that you guys were going to get outraged by it. Uh, He's gotten, he's pretty good at getting everybody fired up, and he's been doing that for a while, and the media responded uh, right, on, uh, right, on, right on task. The senior senator slash press critic didn't seem delighted by the president's antics, but he was firmly assigning it to the entertainment section, not the news. Yeah, I think he did it to gig you guys. I think he did it to provoke you to ask me and others and get outraged by it. Um, like I said, I mean, he, he plays it like a violin and everybody falls right into it. But that's not a real request. Okay, what this reminds me of is Trump's answer to the question. Well, given your changing story about the Trump Tower meeting and who wrote the talking points on the plane, what about the fact that your original explanation was a lie? And then when you said, we don't have to tell the truth to the New York Times. And what that reminded me of is the other week when Corey Lewandowski appeared before the House Judiciary Committee. And that was not true, was it? I have no obligation to be honest with the media because there's just as dishonest as anybody else. Dishonest media. No obligation not to lie to the media. Here's the thing about lying to the media and not being honest with the media and gigging the media. You know what the media is a plural of? That's right. It's medium. And medium is defined as a means of conveyance to an audience. And in that audience are people, the American people, voters, citizens, including millions of citizens that you actually care about, your voters. So saying I have no obligation to be honest with the media is the exact same thing as saying I have no obligation to be honest with the people. Look, I wasn't poisoning people. I was poisoning cartons of milk in the supermarket. What do I care about a stupid paper carton lying cartons? I'm not creating a horrible stench. I am simply pooping. And if that poop goes into my pants, not say a toilet, that is not my fault. I mean, what are pants? Pants don't have olfactory glands. They can't smell. Why should I care about a pair of pants anyway, stupid elitist pants? No, I assume Senator Rubio believes what he's saying and that we should believe what he's saying and not assume that he's lying out of, I don't know, despondence. But how can we know? Because he was just saying it into a microphone. What are microphones? They're just wires and metals. Screw microphones. On the show today... I will spiel about the question posed by two historians. Is the presidency of Donald Trump more dangerous than that of a past president who was actually impeached? Hint, it's not Bill Clinton. But first, well, you ever hear of the Bader-Meinhof effect, which is when you say, huh, 
I've never heard of the Bader-Meinhof effect until I say Bader-Meinhof effect. And then soon, everywhere you look and listen, people will be saying Bader-Meinhof effect. All right, it's actually not, the effect isn't about the effect. The effect is about the Bader-Meinhof terrorist band who you either don't know about it, then you hear about it, and it seems to pop up everywhere. Uh, Let's update this for 2019, the PewDiePie effect. One day you've never heard of PewDiePie, then you hear about PewDiePie, and it turns out PewDiePie is everywhere. Similar thing happened to me with Norbert, the name Norbert. I never think of the name Norbert, maybe in that Eddie Murphy movie. But then a very special thing happened, and it caused me to begin seeing Norberts everywhere. I would read a profile of an actress, and she would say, I don't know, I'd want to do that, but some guy in corporate named Norbert would tell me not to. Norbert. And then I read all these stories about European politics that quote Norbert Rotgen, chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee of the German Parliament, was disgusted. The phone transcript bitterly documents how Trump behind the scenes exploits his power over a state president who is dependent on American support and works for his private interests, said Norbert Rotgen. But why? Why all these Norberts? I'll tell you. It's because of my guest. Norbert Leo Butts is a great Broadway actor who is out with a new album of original songs. The two-time Emmy winner stopped by the show to show that he's a quintuple threat, singing, dancing, acting, playing, writing songs, and sextuple if you consider Norberting. Norbert Leo Butts up next. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. Norbert Leo Butts is the smuckers of Broadway actors. You know, with a name like that, it pretty much has to be good. Now, if you don't know who Norbert Leo Butts is, and I'm only going to say Norbert Leo Butts another 45 times, someone apparently thinks he's some sort of combination of, say, Albert Finney, Ewan McGregor, Steve Martin, and Leo DiCaprio. And I only mention those four because he's played on Broadway, Uh, characters that all of them have played in the movies, Frank Abagnale in Catch Me If You Can, and Steve Martin's Freddy in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and in Big Fish, Norbert played the same role that Finney and McGregor had to combine to play. They need two of them to play the role that Norbert Leo Butts played. He's now out with a new album. He's a multi-talented guy, singer-songwriter, plays guitar, two-time Tony winner, the Long Haul is the name of the album. He's here with me. Hello. Thanks hey, for coming in. Thanks so much. I didn't play the Leonardo DiCaprio role. I played the Tom Hanks role. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was only a few years ago. I'm 50. So you weren't Abagnale. You were... I was the FBI guy trying to catch Abagnale. I was the, the, the Tom Hanks part. The Car- His name was Carl Hanratty mm-hmm. in that story. So you are not constantly on Broadway, but at a, in a typical year... What's the breakdown of where you're performing and what you're performing? Um, that's a, that's tough to answer. I mean, um, I've done a lot of Broadway, um, and it's all been a big mistake. It's, <laughs> I, I, I mean that 100%. I tripped into this career. I came to New York in 1996. I moved from 
uh, Montgomery, Alabama, where I had finished a master's degree at the Hop University of Alabama. Theater, ha, yeah, <laughs> I was at a place called the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, oh, which that's is a, a big one. Yeah, it's a yeah, big regional yeah. theater, and they used to offer an MFA. And after I graduated, I actually stayed down there. I started teaching acting and theater at, at Auburn University. I didn't even move to New York until I was 29. And then I got stupid lucky. I, I came to New York... I uh, said, I, I'm going to move before I'm 30, before I go into full-time academia. At the time, I was working with the band, too. I was like, yeah, I'll be a, a, a college professor, and I'll have a rock band on the side. And, um, so rock, that was the main That was the main. Yeah, I, I've always really loved rock and blues, and it, all through my 20s, I played a ton of clubs and, and uh, parties and all that kind of stuff. I came up here, my ex-wife and I moved up in the fall of 96. The musical Rent had just opened on Broadway. I was asked by a friend to come and play a couple of tunes at a fundraising party for his off-Broadway theater company. Uh-huh. The publicist for Rent was in the audience, said, hey, there's this huge musical has just opened on Broadway. They really need guys to cover the two lead guys. You know, it's a rock and roll score. Their voices were just turned into hamburger each week. So they were casting what we call understudies, yeah. right? You know, relief pitchers, if you will. Yeah. Um, and... Um, uh, I went to a big cattle call the next day, and within like seven weeks after moving to New York City, was playing the lead role in Rent uh, so every Roger Sunday night. So Roger, or well, <laughs> at first I was hired to play Roger every Sunday. Uh-huh. Um, so schedule day off. The under this is correct. This is a pretty decent understudy job, right? Some understudies never get on. It was a great understudy yeah. job. In fact, it was one of the best money gigs of my career because I made my salary yeah. and then I joined the cast about four or five months into the run of it. And like I said, that show was just really ripping apart these singers. A lot of them were kind of untrained rock singers and pop singers and stuff like that. And um, so, yeah, I had one scheduled performance a week and then the rest of the week, I was literally just waited in the green room in case you know he would call in. Right. And then they let and you go by eight... They let you go by what, like 7.45? No, you got to stay until the middle of the second act oh, or something Jesus. like that, and then you go home. <laughs> but the guy I was covering, he's actually a good friend of mine. His name is Adam Pascal. Um, yeah. He was having some real vocal problems, so I was going on two, three, four times a week. So I'd make my salary, and then you make an eighth of his salary every time you go on. I did that for like six months. And then they asked me if I would be a second cover uh-huh. for the other guy, yeah. for Mark. And I went on a couple times, and the producer really liked me in that role. So then I would do... Mark a lot of times in the afternoon and Roger at night. And that was a trip because I would be singing harmonies opposite myself from just a few hours earlier. Um, I mean, I I mean, there's, there's repertoire theater, right? And theater and repertory. And mm -hmm. sometimes like I saw true West where the role, the brother roles switched, but I think they did a performance of performance or three in a row. You're right. And it would mess with their heads a little. You were doing it same day. I know. And I also covered three other guys in the ensemble. Really? And I tell you what, man, it was crazy, but I loved it. They called me the Lon Chaney of rent because Uh I was constantly changing, you know, hair and facial hair and tattoos (laughs) and glasses. And I loved that. Because and so see, from there, they didn't cast in Phantom? I mean, no, that would be no. the obvious move for Lon Chaney. No, yes, right, right, right. No, I've always had more of a sort of a rock or blues or soul edge to my voice. I've never sort of fit super comfortably into like classical musicals. I've tried, um, and I've done a couple of them, but uh, I have to work really hard to sound like super legit and baritone like a lot Some of these guys. On Broadway. Yes, yeah. yes. People might not realize the economics of Broadway because a ticket costs hundred twenty dollars for yes. the kind of cheap ones. Out but of the actors do not get paid well. I, my friend was on Broadway and was telling me that if you do a dance on a table because it's more 
challenging or dangerous, you get an extra $18 a show. That's the truth. <laughs> and people need that 18 bucks. Absolutely, man. <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, that brings up a whole huge subject. But yeah, man, the economics of Broadway are, uh, they're just impossible. I mean, you have, if you're an investor wanting to get money behind a Broadway show, you yeah. really do have better odds playing Kino in, in Atlantic City than, than you do in, in, in a Broadway musical. And you were asking me before, do I do a show each year? I would if I could. But the fact of the matter is, is I've done... I don't know, like 12 Broadway shows. I've won two Tony Awards. And um, I almost went broke, man. I had to, you know, I have three kids. Yeah. I, ca I can't afford a lot of times to do what I'm most trained to do. Because it's not just, you got to understand the pre-production to get a show, to get a Hamilton or to get, you know, right. a Catch Me If You Get Any Broadway show up. It's such a long process, right? There's such a long gestation process. And you got to sign up for the whole thing, which means a five-week rehearsal at which you're paid minimum equity uh, salary for those rehearsals. Even you now, even two times. One hundred percent. It's called favored nations. Yes. Everybody makes the same thing in rehearsal, right? Then you do an out of town run, right? Mm -hmm. You got to go take it to Little a city paper mill place. far, well, even farther. <laughs> right. Most of them like to go far away. <laughs> so no, so if yeah. the show is a big stink bomb, so they can retool those. <laughs> yeah. As if we <laughs> can hide numbers. in this day and age yeah, from when yeah. your show is really terrible. <laughs> But you go out of town, and again, you work for favored nations. You can put in a year, a year and a half, and then they may take a six-month hiatus, mm -hmm. right, before there's a theater available. You can work a year, a year and a half, two years before you even get to your first preview performance on Broadway, which is when your quote-unquote star salary would kick in. So you got a year and a half of sweat in the game. Now, that show opens, and this has happened to me seven out of the 12 shows I've done, eight Mm -hmm. I've been in two successful Broadway shows. All the rest of them I lost money on. Everybody lost money on. The whole thing lost money. You open, you've worked a year and a half, two years, maybe more. A review comes out. It's a pan. Yeah. And that show is closed in two weeks to three weeks. So you've made your great Thanks, salary. Ben <laughs> yeah. You've made your, um, I lost a house because of Ben Brantley one time. <laughs> was it Enron? It was not Enron. He did kill was, Enron. <laughs> he killed Enron. He's killed many of mine. Uh, I can't say that he killed it for whatever reason. You know, look, it's an open marketplace. Sure. And it's super competitive. And, so which um, were the two? Uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Did that? The only that two shows I've ever done that have made real, yeah. real money um, were the shows I did the least. I was in the original cast of Wicked. Which, oh, sure. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. Continuing. And I guess Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And that only made money after the fact. So that initial investment didn't make its money back on Broadway, but by the time it toured, that's when you can really make the bank because you're in front of 4,000 seat theaters yeah. as opposed to 900 Then you're also theaters. away from your family if you're not. True that. <laughs> you know, a young kid. Yeah. Yeah. So I was listening to the new album, The Long Haul, and there are a couple songs, there are a couple of lyrics which I couldn't quite make out. And the only reason I even dwelled on that is it's extremely common for country or rock to put over a lyric based more on the emotion of it. And then you're like, what are they saying? First line of, uh, I, I met a gin-soaked barroom queen in Memphis. I had <laughs> no idea what Mick was saying for 20 years. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think it was, I think it's the If Wishes Were Horses song. Yeah. And is there, what's the line about beggars? Where, uh, wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. Yeah, I didn't exactly know. I, I heard that then beggars- Would ride. Right. So yes. if you're on Broadway, 
would ride. Yeah, right. But when yeah. you sing the song, well, you know, I ride. learned a, I learned a ton making this record. I set myself the challenge. I almost abandoned the project a bunch, a bunch of times. But I've been writing, writing in the closet, as it were, for a long time, and. And I was just really urged by a friend producer of mine. He's like, man, let's get these out. Let's get these out. And we'd work on them. And, and I'd be like, oh, I just, I, I, I can't. These are, I, I had become comfortable singing behind a character. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And he's like, man, you got to get your stuff out there. But one of the hardest things for me to, 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 to do was make the transition to a, a, a high, high frequent, you know, high tech vocal mic mm-hmm. in a booth mm-hmm. as opposed to singing with a yeah. lavalier mic in your wig in front of a broad blow it out as you much as you can blow it out and you have a big big freaking voice i have a really big voice <laughs> yeah. dude and so finding the restraint finding and maybe i tipped it sometimes too much finding the restraint fi- letting the mic do the work yeah. was a real challenge it's the same challenge i had when i had been doing stage work for 20 years and in the past 10 years i've been doing a lot more television bringing it in you got to find working with the eyes that's sort of thing. knowing yeah. where you're at knowing what your media understanding your medium um that's a sh- that's a steep learning curve um i'm so grateful that i feel like i i've i've had like i said i've had the experiences it just means more work is available for me, but it's a tough, tough learning curve, especially for actors in the theater, especially for musical theater actors, because you're right, man, it's a full body, it's a full body experience. So it doesn't surprise me that you wrote these songs while working on a TV project, because it seems like it might be hard to eight days a week be be in one musical form, you know, you're singing a musical and then to just go back and write in a different entirely different form it would mess with the process i would imagine 100 percent. yeah when i'm doing a run of a play especially i cannot i cannot work on other music right um you're so right about that one ear is uh constantly i see a lot of analogies between sports and, and performance and theater performance you know what i mean you know um even if you are you're pinch hitting if if if, if you might be you know be a relief pitcher that 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 is way down in the you know, you don't know if you're going to be pitching that night. You can you can make the best plan you can, but you're not going to be able to sit over there and I don't know, do Sudoku or, 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 or concentrate on a on a on a novel. Yes. Uh, do you know what I mean? You've yeah. you've got to stay in tune with the rhythm of that game, and that's very very true of live theater. You, you I have to, even if I'm off stage for a long time in a show, um, I got to have one one ear on the can at all times. It's not like you have to. I stay in character or anything like that, but it's just staying in the building. One time I was doing My Fair Lady at Lincoln Center and had a really big break between scenes, like an hour and 45 minute break. And you played, uh, you played the dad, right? I played the dad to the church on time. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I had this That's big break. And so I would go down to the basement of Lincoln Center where they have this incredible piano and I'd sit down and I'd oh, wow. play and lose myself. And I did that one time when I heard over the loudspeaker, Norbert Butts, stage left, Norbert Butts, oh shit. And then you <laughs> run upstairs, your heart's going like, so I'm like, never again, never again. <laughs> Give me to the that's, stage on time. <laughs> well, that's the, that's the ADD part of me, man. I'm distractible. But when I'm in something, I go deep. Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, you're right about that. It's really, really hard. So you brought your guitar, so I thought we would ask you, would you like to play for us? I'll play a snippet of something. Yes, I will. And this will be what? Uh, this is a tune that I wrote for my wife. It's called South Mountain Waltz. It's unabashedly romantic. Uh, I married a very wonderful woman, and uh, I thought I should do one album, one song on the album for her. So this is the one. Mm-hmm. 
as the sun sets Turns this mountain to blood And I feel you like a river in flood And I breathe you, you're the air on my skin But I'm restless, all this love Into the bed and out the front door We fly through the night and over the glen Three-quarter time and then we do it again, my love As the sun sets and the sky starts to weep And I need you Like the ground at my feet And I breathe you You're the air on my skin But I'm restless All this love that I'm in Move me across the floor into our bed and out the front door We fly through the night and over the glen In three-quarter time and we do it again, my Very nice. You do it for the applause. <laughs> Norbert Leo Butts is out with a new album called The Long Haul, 12 songs that he wrote that he plays on Broadway mainstay. Um, I guess the latest uh, film or TV project, Fosse Verdon, is still out there. And his new film, Loose, with Octavia Spencer, is also out in theaters now. Norbert, great to meet you. You too, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel. Trump is self-impeaching. I think the phrase gives him too much credit. Like this guy could ever wrangle a majority vote in the House and two-thirds vote in the Senate. Anyway, he is incriminating himself every day. But when an idiot criminal admits to the crimes, we don't say he's self-prosecuting. I mean, that takes training and knowing things. I bring it all up because yesterday was another big day of terrible revelations for what looked like the pre-impeachment moments of the Trump presidency. But you know what made me livid? No, it wasn't, wasn't the China thing. It was Andrew Johnson, an op-ed in the Washington Post arguing headline, why Donald Trump is much more dangerous than Andrew Johnson. 
Subhead, while both presidents are demagogues who faced impeachment, today's political reality means that Trump can do more damage. Now, the authors, Sidney M. Milkis and Daniel J. Trichonor, two historians, do have a decent case to make, not decent enough. But it's basically this. The powers of the president then, compared to the powers of the presidency now, they're really incomparable. To cite one example, which they didn't do in their piece, but I happen to know, and I find it shocking, the Justice Department, the head of which is apparently gallivanting about the globe, trying to scare up oppo research over the 2016 race. Anyway, the 100,000-plus Department of Justice, guess how many members it had in Andrew Johnson's time? Zero. Didn't exist until created under U.S. Grant. Also, and this is part of the Milkis Trichonor argument, Partisanship's huge. Partisanship means any politician with party backing will be more powerful today because Andrew Johnson was a Democrat turned Republican who had no backing among Republicans. In other words, Johnson had no base. Trump has a base. Base is everything these days. Therefore, Trump more dangerous. Here now is why they're wrong. Andrew Johnson inhabited the presidency at a crucial inflection point in U.S. history. He was responsible, and in some cases solely responsible, for inflecting it in the wrong direction. He let the Confederate states back in the Union with almost no consequence. He vetoed civil rights legislation. The 14th Amendment was relatively toothless because of him. He was the author of, by design or neglect, the shameful Reconstruction period that if done differently, I'm not saying perfectly, but if done differently, as General Grant wanted, would have had an immeasurable positive effect on America. The other point is, and this goes right at those two historians' points about partisanship, the replacement for Donald Trump will be Mike Pence, who will carry out a partisan Republican policy agenda. In fact, he'd probably be better at it than the distracted and dissolute Trump. But the replacement for Johnson would have been Benjamin Wade. Benjamin Wade was the speaker pro tem of the Senate. The rules of succession were different then. Johnson didn't have a VP, having ascended after the assassination of Lincoln. Wade was next in line. Wade was what they call a radical Republican. That's what they called it at the time. But here's what was radical about him in 1868. He was radically against the Fugitive Slave Act. He was radically for women's suffrage. And he literally believed in the equality of African Americans. So what I'm saying is this radical meant that he was on the right side of history and would have been as great an improvement over the sitting president as Christopher Nolan was over Joel Schumacher as Batman director. And I'm going to say the stakes of 1868 America were even higher than Batman. Shout out to all you Comic-Con nerds. I would go as far as to say that if I could pick one president in history to be impeached who wasn't, I would pick Andrew Johnson, who almost got impeached by one vote. It might be hard to believe, you know, things worked out pretty good for America, at least that's what they told me as a kid. But I think... They would have been so much better, not perfect, but just so much better than the horror they were under Johnson. I think they would have been better under Wade. He would have had more of a positive effect than the difference between Trump and Pence. It may be impossible to know. I bow to recency bias. I also bow to Donald Trump bias. He has a lot of it. Oh, and by the way, you could argue 
as history ripples through time, that if the terms of Reconstruction weren't so disastrous, maybe a force like Donald Trump wouldn't have existed. Hmm. I also want to quote something from Brenda Winehouse's great book, The Impeachers, about this time. A pretty good argument that Johnson actually was pretty powerful. This is a quote from the abolitionist Wendell Phillips, who is publisher of the National Anti-Slavery Newsletter. With a cabinet composed of all his adherents, all enemies to the nation and its loyal inhabitants, with a treasury full of money, a large secret service fund at his disposal, with military officers in command at the South sympathizing with his views, a general of the army so hedged round with military etiquette, with a large Southern population seething with rebellion, hordes of secret societies there, only waiting for the signal to spring to arms. What can't the president do in all this time? Indeed. Anyway, and you might not be able to tell, but I'm really, really into the impeachment and ultimate acquittal of the coward, Andrew Johnson. In fact, I would like to end by reading one of my favorite quotes. All right, here's the context. This is about Edmund Ross. He's the Kansas senator who voted to acquit. The final vote in that one margin vote that kept the angry, intemperate Tennessean in the White House. Now, what you need to know is that Ross took office after the sitting Kansas senator, James Lane, shot himself and committed suicide for reasons still unknown. After Ross's fatal vote, misinterpreted as a profile and courage by John F. Kennedy, but really a decision made out of either cowardice or craveness. After the Ross vote kept Johnson in office, a telegram came to Ross. It was written by a member of the Kansas Supreme Court. It was not a compliment. The telegram read in full. Probably the rope with which Judas hanged himself is lost, but the pistol with which James Lane shot himself is at your service. And that is 1868 for Burns, son. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader, who cosplays as Thaddeus Stevens' work on that hallowed-out glare, kid. Christina DeJosa produced the gist all by herself today. She just requested, look, Mike, can you dwell in 1868? And this time we can maybe move on to the 20th century next time. Sure, yeah, 20th century will be easy. Two words, McKinley, Leon Trollgosh. It's a Donnybrook, the gist. Perhaps the swamp that visited a pestilence upon William Henry Harrison is cleared, but the poop within the Lewandowski trousers obtains. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>